This is the current federal tax developments for January the 17th, 2022. Current federal tax developments are brought to you by Kaplan Financial Education and by your state society of CPAs. This week, we're going to look at a few developments that took place in this week, heading up into our beginning of tax season. And one of the first things we're going to look at this week is we're going to look at the fact that the IRS announced that Form 1024 is going to join Form 1023 in being forms that must be filed online only. Uh, 1023 joined that group in early 2020. I should say 1020, uh, 1023 did. 1024 now will be part of it now. We'll talk about that form. We'll also talk about the release of the National Taxpayer Advocates Report to Congress and how that is resulting in a series of events that are increasing pressure on the IRS to do something about the problems they're having processing correspondence and some of the responses and issues and problems and how there might be a possibility that we'll see action, but then again, maybe not, because the service has not really been in favor of doing much about that all throughout the pandemic. Finally, the IRS announced the beginning of filing season, right, including other information that may be useful, shall we say, uh, for the season. They brought all of that together in today's, in these announcements that we're going to have this week. So let's go ahead and let, let's take a look at this and see what's going on. First, let's start out with the uh, first announcement we've got in here, which is Revenue Procedure 2022-08. Now, this was actually released on January the 3rd, but I didn't cover this last week, so I thought I should probably pick it up this week. And what happened was, if you remember back in 2020, the IRS forced 501c3 organizations uh, to file Form 1023 online. Now, that was back in early February of 2020, just before we got into the pandemic, etc. What's happening now is the 1023 was used for 501c3 organizations to apply for their exempt status. Now, non-501c3s that are 501a organizations, they generally filed Form 1024, and 1024 was not, at that time, required to be filed online. However, the IRS is now moving to require that to happen. So we're now going to see that, in fact, uh, Form 1024 is now going to become a mandatorily filed online form. And that's true for any other 501A organizations. That should say, if you're seeing the slide, it says C. That should be A organizations, but also would apply if they want to, 521 organizations have a bit of a choice. Remember, a number of years ago, 521 organizations, they have to file, they were having to file their own special form, 1028, uh, to recognize their status and also register with the 8718. Now, if they want to, they want the formal determination letter, they could file a 1023. If they do, it does have to be done electronically via this mechanism. It will, however, take over for the other forms that could be filed. Okay. Now, a couple of things, and again, that's mandatory. They will have to go to www.pay.gov to pay a $600 fee. That was in the IRS news release announced that that was not changing this year, released at the same time. So they have to pay the fee and basically prepare the return, file it, submit it online. 
That's a requirement now for these organizations. These tax exempts that are not public charities. That's the group that'll be in here. Now, another interesting change here in this notice, which is really funny, because notice 2022-5 was issued for general letter ruling requests, and it contained the old rules. But on the same day, we released this with the new rules. Now, I think this is primarily because of the little 90-day you know, kind of transition period we're going to be allowed. We'll discuss in a second. That will allow people to still file on paper using the old system. So they left it in the notice as the general rule. And then this notice, this revenue procedure, published the same day, literally goes and changes the revenue procedure published on the same day. So it actually tells you to go back in and make changes to that one that appeared at the same day. The logical reason for doing that, as I said, to be honest, is because they want to do a separate notice and they want to provide this transition period. So apparently the service decided it was easier to have 2022-5 as issued just like the prior year, read like the prior year. So in the transition period, you can use it. But then outside the transition period, you're going to have to go to this update. So that's kind of what's there. But one of the key things that changes is who can sign the form. Under the original notice, the Form 1024, that paper form, could be signed by an officer of the charity, a trustee who is authorized to sign, or any federally authorized tax practitioner representative that was authorized to sign via a power of attorney. Now we're going to change those rules, and we're going to add some people and take a group away that will be of interest to the people listening to this. But we're going to add, you could be a director of the charity. So you don't have to be an officer, but if you're a director, you could sign it. And I shouldn't say charity. It's not public charity, but of the tax-exempt organization. You also could be any other official of the exempt org, not necessarily a trustee, not necessarily an officer, but another official that is authorized by the organization to sign for the organization. However, it removes the option to have a representative authorized under a power of attorney. Specifically, it tells us the signature of a representative authorized by a power of attorney who is not an officer, director, trustee, or other official of the organization will not satisfy the signature requirements for Form 1024. So if you've been used to doing these applications, getting a power of attorney, and then submitting it under your power of attorney, that's going away, and it's going away very quickly. Now, there will be a, a transition time frame here. So for the, for the next 90 days, what's going to happen here is the IRS will accept a completed paper form 1044 from an organization that previously was required to submit paper form 1024 and now is required to submit the electronic form. And for this period, they'll also accept for processing a letter application from an organization that previously is required to submit a letter request and now is required to submit the 1024. The paper 1024 or letter application must be accompanied by the correct user fee described in Revenue Procedure 2022-5. And as noted, it didn't change. That's still going to be the $600. Prior to the modification payment of user fees made by this revenue procedure and postmarked on or before the date that is 90 days after the effective date of this revenue procedure. So essentially, you got three months. So you're going to have January, February, March to get this done. Uh, beginning in early April, 
you're going to have to start doing this electronically. So that is part of the deal. So again, as I said, you know, we have that transition period. We have those issues. These are things you need to kind of keep your eyes on. Now, next up, we have something that's happening that probably you're going to want to be aware of. Maybe it'll lead to something. Maybe it won't. But we had this week the National Taxpayer Advocate released her annual report to Congress for 2021. Right. We just completed that calendar year. The taxpayer advocate is describing what happened, what went on and, you know, what her recommendations are for the IRS to, you know, for basically what are the issues? What should Congress take care of? What exactly should be done? So that's part of what we're looking at here today. And one of the key things which the taxpayer advocate points out because it's become a major problem is spilled over to the taxpayer advocate service is the major backlog of IRS uh, being able to deal with correspondence and process returns. There is still a huge backlog of unprocessed 2020 returns that are lying around as well as an extreme amount that most of us are aware of of correspondence where essentially we are unable to get the IRS to actually take action. You know, we can't even get a hold of the IRS for these reasons. And as they were noting here, you know, the taxpayer advocate has been pressuring the IRS to do a six-month basically pause. So if you get funny, you finally get through and you're talking to collections, and they do a lot of collections, obviously, you know, the taxpayer advocate said, look, this this nine week hold is worthless. They will not get to your correspondence within nine weeks, that there should be at a minimum a six week hold imposed on this. That's what they've been pressuring the service to do basically throughout the pandemic. And the service is resisting this very, very clearly. The service does not want to do it right now. She also reported that she is now getting contact from congressional offices and more interest from Congress to look at doing some sort of suspension of these notices to impose that on the IRS, uh, given how out of control the situation is getting. Yeah, it's been very difficult. We all know that. We've all had those things. And as a taxpayer advocate points out, once you're in the automated notice system, you will continue to get automated notices regardless of the explanation you have, the valid explanation you have uh, that should stop that from happening, right? It's no matter. The IRS notice is an error. And yes, that does happen. IRS notices are an error. Now, I'm certain the commissioner would point out that the vast majority of IRS notices are correct. And that may be true because I'm sure they deal with a lot of very basic uh, problems on self-prepared returns especially that are just simply wrong. Uh, but the problem is with returns prepared, you know, by most of us listening here on this on this broadcast, we tend to see an awful lot of the notices. We see a much higher percentage, probably than normal, are in error because, you know, we're we're not making generally the type of simple mistakes that a lot of people doing their own return would be would likely make and that are picked up by the automated system. And that's the problem though. If a notice is in error, there is really no way to stop it. The taxpayer advocate points out 
that a very, very small percentage, I think she reported 3% of phone calls to the IRS to deal with individual tax issues are getting through. 97% time, 97% of the time, it is a failure if you try to get through to the IRS on the phone to resolve. At best, 9% overall of calls are answered, and only 3% dealing with these individual return issues are answered by the IRS. That means that we have a system on autopilot having to mail in documents because we can't get through on the phones, and that getting stacked up, and these notices continuing to come and continuing to get more and more threatening, uh, regardless of the fact that the notice is entirely wrong. You simply cannot get this stopped. That presents a problem. Now, this week, shortly after that, on Friday, uh, a number of tax professional organizations, including the AICPA, right, for CPAs, the National Association of Enrolled Agents, and along with them, the other groups involved in this letter, Latino Tax Pro, National Association of Black Accountants, Inc., the, the National Association of Tax Professionals, the National Conference of CPA Tax Practitioners, the National Society of Accountants, the National Society of Black Certified Public Accountants, Inc., the National Society of Tax Professionals, Paget Business Services, and Prosperity Now, all of which were part of signing this letter, which is an interesting letter to see if you see the PDF version of it, because they're low, all those logos take up a huge chunk at the top of the page. So it's interesting, top of the page. You couldn't really put on the letterhead for any of the organizations, so we had to get them all with their logos up there. I don't know how they decided whose logo went where. I'm certain they just kind of got them on there, and hey, it looks good, we're going. Everybody's on the list. Now, that letter emphasized some one of some of these issues. You know, it basically said, look, we understand that the coronavirus pandemic has given the IRS a situation they've not been in before. And that, in essence, the, you know, we're seeing a lot of issues here. You know, we have a lot of unprocessed returns, a lot of correspondence not touched. In fact, it was not the taxpayer advocate. It was actually this letter that talks about answering 9% of all calls and 3% of calls regarding individual income tax return issues are picked up. The letter goes on to state, though we appreciate that the IRS recognizes that it is frustrating for all, including the IRS, that the IRS is unable to deliver the amount of service and enforcement that our taxpayers and tax system deserves and needs. Okay, we've been nice now. Now, comma, let's get a little bit unnice. The service has not taken reasonable actions that would meaningfully reduce unnecessary burdens during this upcoming tax filing season. Now, if you want to know why it gets a little nastier in the letter, uh, you might want to go back to what we talked about in November of 2020, uh, when the commissioner appeared at the AICPA's National Conference on Federal Taxes and shot down entirely the suggestion that the IRS should offer some sort of automatic penalty relief or somehow back off of this automated notice system, the, uh, the commissioner very, very directly rejected that idea as being counterproductive and unnecessary and refused to consider it. Shall we say certain AICPA um, staff and members of committees were somewhat unhappy after that, and it's kind of gone downhill from there. My assumption is that the other professional organizations have found similarly that the, you know, the basically the commissioner is not willing to listen to this concept or has been unwilling to do so, and top IRS management has been so. 
because, you know, it's just one of those things where these organizations tend to be nice to the IRS because you're trying to get them to do things, you know, and influence them for things they don't have to do. But I have a feeling the frustration level has gotten very high, shall we say. So while that's not as nasty, you might say, wait, I've been on Twitter. That, that's not nasty at all. You want to see nasty, go on a Twitter thread somewhere. And I understand that. But this is nasty in the same way you can read court opinions sometimes and realize that the justices are not playing nice with each other, you know, in the way they're writing their opinion. It still is written in, quote, respectful language, but there are just certain, time, certain things they say that you realize you're not happy with each other. So that, that's kind of to give this idea with this letter. So here is what they recommend. They say to reduce the need for taxpayers and tax professionals to communicate with the IRS due to the persistent and erroneous notices, Treasury and the IRS should first discontinue automated compliance actions until the IRS is prepared to devote the necessary resources for a proper and timely resolution to the matter. This one, they actually footnote down and note that the taxpayer advocate has suggested effectively the same thing. And again, I don't know this letter so much for the IRS as it is for Congress because copies of this went to the tax writing committee. So be aware of that. I have a feeling they are trying to put pressure on. Secondly, a line request for account holds with the time it takes the IRS to process any penalty abatement request. That's that specifically that thing which the next taxpayer advocate noted in the article in tax notes when she was talking to the California Association of Enrolled Agents on a virtual conference this week about the six-month hold, right? That would be there. Now, the next couple have just been suggested by the group or not something the taxpayer advocate had said. They also say offer reasonable cause penalty waiver similar to the procedures of the first-time abate administrative waiver without affecting the taxpayer's eligibility for first-time abate in future tax years. If you're not aware of first-time abate, for a very limited number of penalties, if the taxpayer has not been penalized, they're generally failure to file, failure to pay, and failure to deposit timely. Those are like the only three this works on. But if you've not been penalized by one of those, for one of those in the prior three years, then the IRS in the Internal Revenue Manual will offer, is supposed to offer automatically, a first-time abate waiver. Now, it doesn't matter if you have otherwise reasonable cause, etc. You have to burn this FTA. Now, once you burn the FTA, you can't use it again for three years. So the concern is, while you know, the commissioner said, well, the, these people can get out with first time abate if they're not, you know, if they really are just impacted by the pandemic and they aren't serial late filers, then they can just use first-time abate. They'll get out of their failure-to-pay penalty and failure-to-file penalty. So, you know, what are you worried about? This is what they're worried about. And I think it's become especially worrisome now that the pandemic situation has continued on somewhat unpredictably, but has continued on uh, into now 2022. And so there may be situations where taxpayers or their advisors may run into situations where returns are not timely prepared or timely filed or payments are not made on time because the taxpayer or the advisor happens to be that to be down you know with a severe case of let's say covid something similar uh you know at exactly the wrong time uh resulting in returns not being completed or things like that and if that's happened 
as has happened to some people where they've been, you know, COVID positive twice, uh, it could burn multiple years. So they're saying this COVID thing, a failure to timely file or a failure to timely pay or similar issues due to the pandemic that relate to the pandemic, we, we should just give everybody a pass on that. If they otherwise qualified for FTA, then they, they should get an FTA that doesn't count against them during the pandemic, something of that sort. Finally, provide taxpayers with targeted relief from both the underpayment of estimated tax and the late payment penalties for 2020 and 2021 tax years. That probably that relates to a number of odd issues with the quirky estimates were not extended, but the return was, all the other quirkiness, various other reasons, and the simple problem that if somebody was, you know, you know, was disabled with COVID or had to take care of a relative who may have been hospitalized, etc. Um, you know, bottom line, they might not have been able to get their proper amount of tax to pay computed and paid in. So they might have been late. They may have been in, you know, they could have been in the ICU for all we know and, you know, unable to send it in. And this should just be a flat out broad based relief. The IRS, you know, basically this is kind of barring that AICPA November 2020 uh, suggestion. Just make it broad based general don't require people to prove reasonable cause because, guys, you can't handle the load, right? You guys cannot take more correspondence. You're drowning under the correspondence that you're creating with automated notices. Suffice it to say, these organizations are unhappy and they're doing it. Then they're going to start putting some complaints. And they obviously are sending this to the tax writing committee. So the tax writing committee is aware that here's what we told the IRS. They haven't, so when they don't do anything, they'll then complain back to the committee and say, look, you guys know we sent them this letter in early January. They have done nothing. Uh, you guys need to act, right? You guys need, need to get on them and either get them to act or you need to act. Finally, there was an article in Tax Notes this week that specifically discussed the fact that congressional offices are being overwhelmed by requests for assistance. Now, the article does note that the IRS is not the only government office that is causing, you know, the constituent service portion of a Congress, you know, a congressperson's office or senator's office to be required to deal with. You know, we're seeing backups in Social Security as well. They're another agency that has a similar set of problems. But this backup in the IRS has gotten progressively worse. In the article, they talk about the number of referrals from congressional offices to the TAS, who most often is in the middle of straightening this out when the, con you know, the congressman said, my constituents having trouble, they're not getting the IRS to fix anything, uh, you know, take care of it. TAS has done that, but now TAS is being overwhelmed with complaints from taxpayers. Now, as well as congressional numbers that are through the roof, their staffing still the same. So, you know, it, it's the issue we had with the, the with the Congress trying to use the Small Business Administration to process, you know, all of those PPP loans where it's a small agency that usually processed only a small percentage of small businesses were trying to get a loan from them at any point in time. And most small businesses never got a loan from them. Suddenly, every small business was effectively trying to get in the door at once. Same issue here. You, you know, th this is not going to scale. And it didn't. So we'll see what that does. We'll see if congressional offices now, as they get backed up, and remember, this being an election year, you know, if I call my representative, 
and my representative can't get me any service, you know, and just tells me, oh, sorry, you got to give up. The agency can't do anything and we can't do anything about that. That may make you less likely to vote for that congressperson or that senator in the upcoming election. So that will probably put some pressure there on them to get rid of this problem. So I would hope, and I'll be honest, I'm hoping for relief here. I'm going to be a little partisan, shall we say here, and say I'm hoping for relief. I'm supposed to, you know, normally try to stay off these things. But my guess is, you know, I think that it would be a very smart idea, regardless of party affiliation, for any congressman or senator up for election in 2022 who would like to be reelected to get behind something to get these, you know, to get this stuff relieved, fix this problem. I'm not sure what they'll do with Social Security, but that's not really my issue that's driving me batty right now. This one is. So, you know, we'll see what they can do. But yeah, real problem. And so we'll have to see what happens. Finally, let's discuss the IRS has posted information online. At the same time, they posted online information about opening the filing season which was found in news release IR 2022-08 that was issued on January the 10th. Uh, they also gave us some other information. I'll try to hit some of the highlights. The first obvious thing is the tax filing season is going to begin on January 24th. So the IRS will begin accepting electronic individual returns uh, the 24th. So next Monday, if you're listening to this when we release this, next Monday they'll begin accepting it. Now, whether your tax software will begin allowing you to send them then is a whole nother question. Uh, quite often, there's a day or two delay there. Uh, as well, there's probably going to be at least some forms, right, that are going to be delayed in being able to be processed electronically uh, or your tax. And remember, that whole process always involves the IRS has to release the forms and have them ready for electronic processing. Your tax software vendor then has to get that written into their software and they have to give the go. Some software vendors, you know, will update those things very quickly and you'll have it within a day or two. Others are on very fixed cycles for when they update their software. So if you miss a cycle, you may have to wait a week or two weeks or whatever it is until the next update before that'll be fixed. So doesn't mean everybody can file on the 24th. As well, certainly a lot of state forms are going to be up in the air and not ready. Uh, you're going to have to see that. So doesn't necessarily mean everybody will file that day, but it does mean it is opening up. That is nine days later, or should say probably th this year, we should say to be fair, six days later than the IRS would normally aim to open up because January 15th fell on a Saturday. And January 17th is Martin Luther King Day, which is a federal holiday. That means that the 18th would have been the normal opening date. We're going to open a little less than a week later, the beginning of the following. So effectively, we're starting a week late compared to what we normally would. That's not that bad. I think had the Build Back Better Act passed, that would have been substantially delayed. The IRS also reminds people that... Um, you know, they cannot, They do have an automatic required delay if the return has earned income tax credit. So that one is required to be delayed. So, you know, be aware of that, that those, those refunds will not come out right away. So be aware of that background. Now, the IRS also gives a quick update on 2020 return processing backlog. And here they really don't update us at all. 
They're still quoting dates that came out from what's essentially early December, uh, telling us that, you know, they had all paper electronic returns uh, received prior to April 2021 have been processed if the return had no errors but did not require additional review. However, there's still not a huge number, as the taxpayer advocate points out, of returns that even their 2020 returns that have not been processed. Some of them are electronic. A larger portion of them are paper returns. Now, the IRS does tell taxpayers as part of this that if your 2020 return has not yet been processed, you're expecting a refund, you haven't seen it, uh, whatever reason the return has not been processed, that does not stop you from filing the 21 return. Now, that's correct as far as it goes. However, we all know there's a potential problem there. The concern will be if that 2020 return was applying an overpayment to the 21 return, I would probably want to hold on filing the 21 return until the 20 return was actually processed by the service. Because I'm betting if you don't and you file ahead and that has not yet posted, you know, the amount of overpayment has not yet posted to the system, that that'll almost certainly result in a notice coming saying, hey, you know, your, your tax returns in error with a correction, please send us $6,000 or $8,000 or whatever you applied, which will be erroneous correspondence and take us right back through the problem we were discussing earlier in this program, which is where you're in the IRS's whole mess of, you know, being stuck in that routing of having an erroneous notice that the IRS isn't opening, the IRS is not dealing with yet, but which they continue to send out automated notices that are eventually threatening to levy your client's bank account. So, yeah, kind of open for that, right? Now, the IRS also points out and says they do give us a, an expected time period to receive refunds. And the first thing they say is, hey, 21 days, you'll get a refund right, within 21 days of when you file. Well, a couple of caveats to that, though. First thing is that it's only filing electronically. If your clients, everything you can do this year to get clients to file electronically uh, will be very, very, very appreciated, shall we say. Uh, mostly to you. It will save you a ton of work. I, I think any client, if you decide that you're willing to prepare a return for a client that files on paper. And I will warn you that a number of CPAs and EAs have told me they simply aren't doing it. They're like, they, they say they want to file on paper. I say they got to find somebody else to do the return, right? I file electronically or I don't. That's just, you know, it's I file electronically or not. But if you are going to file on paper and basically I'm not really accepting new clients that want to file on paper. Uh, I still have some old clients that want to. I think I'm down to just a couple at this point. Uh, one of whom, you know, a couple of them got burned by filing on paper in 2020. I should say in 2019, which I told them they probably would, but of course didn't believe that. So they kind of decided to change this year. Um, one recently passed away, I discovered. So, you know, that, that of course is one way they age out of your system. Uh, but yeah. The clients that have filed on paper, which I have very few, but the ones that have, have had an enormous and inordinate number of problems just because the returns aren't processed compared to electronically filed returns. So it's up to you, but realize paper returns are way more are way more of a problem for you. And I'll be blunt, 
I think those clients have to be willing to pay for that extra work they're adding if they want a paper file. You know, I mean, I understand some of them just don't trust things. They don't trust the electronics, you know, all that stuff. It's like, yeah, fine, look, but you trust some unknown person to see your entire return on paper and be able to read it directly. So you trust that. And you trust it going through the mails, which also is a complicated mess right now. Uh, nevertheless, if they file on paper, I will tell them you'll be lucky to get your refund, uh, you know, within, you know, whatever. If you're getting a refund, you'll just be lucky to get it. And if you're paying, I've seen this happen too. If they're paying, the IRS receives the return, right? They have the payment that, you know, is in the, with the voucher that came with the return. A few months later, a letter comes to the client saying, we have this unapplied credit of exactly equal to what they sent with the voucher. And, you know, and, and you have not yet filed your 2020 return. And realize you could lose this entirely, you know, if you don't file your 20 return on time because any refund would be given. It's like, okay, send them that letter. Obviously, they got the return because the check was it with the voucher in the envelope with the return. The check was obviously cashed. However, doesn't matter to the IRS how absurd it is. The automatic notices still come out in cases where it is clearly in error and you just can't stop them, right? There's no way to fix that. I can't force them to process the return as I told the client. Sure, we could send a copy of the return with it signed, what they're requesting, but that's going to go in a stack and not be open for another year. So, you know, what good's that going to do? They already got a signed return. I would say if we send that in, we're obviously going to send it with a letter saying you already have this. You clearly already have it. There's a signed return somewhere because you cashed the check. But that's the nature. So, again, paper filing wildly, wildly, should I say, is a horridly bad idea. It has caused issues in many ways. It's caused issues with the basically even Social Security using the wrong year, right? If they don't have, if you've not yet processed the 20 return and they're figuring out what your Medicare premium should be for 20, for 22, they're going to use 19. Now, you know, you might have said, well, 19 was a high year, right? So maybe we did pay extra back in 20, you know, in 21, but that was going to go down in 22 and suddenly you get the notice about the extra. And as noted, Social Security is basically as fouled up as the IRS. You really can't just walk in as easily as you used to and get this straightened out. So yeah, you know, continue on mess because now you got to get somebody at the Social Security to go ahead and read your paper 2020 return and then accept that even though the IRS system still shows you never filed one. There's no way that goes wrong. Yeah, you know, it's just one of those things you get into. So as I say, kind of a mess. It depends. I will tell clients if you don't file electronically, and I'll be blunt, you don't file electronically and you don't give direct deposit, um, I make no guarantee whatsoever when you'll see your refund. Maybe it'll be in a few weeks. Maybe it'll be longer. Who knows? Secondly, even if you do do electronically, if there's some discrepancy, like you gave me the wrong advanced child tax credit number or you gave us the wrong number for the uh, you know, third economic impact payment, well, that could extend it a long time as well. So we need to do that, which takes us on to the third issue that the IRS mentions in this online thing. The IRS talks about the letters they're sending for the 
advanced child tax credit payments that taxpayers should have received this year, as well as information on the economic impact payment. Now, first thing is clients should have gotten those letters, right? They should they should have by now the advanced child tax credit letter. I know they were arriving uh, early last week. I know I was hearing about them coming in and becoming available. So they, they should be there or be there soon. Now, for married couples, it does appear they're being issued uh, as a, you know, one to each spouse for the half that was deemed paid to that spouse. Uh, first thing is that tells me if they file separately this year, it's not going to matter who got the check. You know, it went in the account and, well, you know, he kept that account or she kept that account, didn't give anything to me. It's irrelevant. You were married to them. You, you're still responsible for half that payment. You got to go talk to them to get the money. Good luck, uh, which ought to be great fun. But also, so I need both letters and I need the economic impact payment letter. And remember, there could have been two checks, so you can't just rely on the bank accounts. If the client does not have the letter, this notice tells them how to get online and access that. However, it will depend on them being able to clear the IDME system, it appears, which means if they are, shall we say, technologically challenged, unable to get that done, uh, you know, they say, I can't get it done. I don't know. It's confusing, right? You know, we have that. It's confusing. I don't get it. I don't know what to do. It's like, well, okay, if you're wrong about the amount, right, you swear you didn't get an advanced child tax credit payment, even though as far as I could see, you should have, and you swear you didn't get an economic impact payment, even though you should have, right? If you're wrong about that and your refund may be over a year to come out now, you got choices, and I'm likely to get correspondence, which I'm going to probably have to charge you in order to take care of because this correspondence exists because we're having to do this work. Now, you could come in, and presuming as COVID runs becomes fun, coming in becomes interesting in some cases, but let's go ahead. We, we could at least try to help you do it so you get online and get yourself together. Uh, we could also try some other things, but, you know, to try to get that. If they really do lose the letter and they can't go online, uh, you could try to get a transcript. They can try to get it, but that's going to involve them going through IDME again, which if they couldn't get through IDME to get the basic information, transcript probably won't work. But the transcript be a perfect fix. If they can get themselves worked up, if they can throw through the system and they can authorize, either they get the transcript, and I would suggest to most clients, given how messed up the IRS is, it's not a bad idea to get in there and get your transcript. So, you know, you can figure out what the IRS is doing. We can figure it out. You know, have access to all that stuff, plus do it for somebody else does it for you, quote unquote. Because if you can't figure out this stuff, maybe somebody with a faked driver's license and, uh, you know, passport or whatever, if they got that information and they can fake it right, they could get in. So I would say you want to set up that account regardless uh, to get in there, get that information together. Nevertheless, we do have the information here. We do have how you can get it. Assuming Congress doesn't do another payment, which I don't think they're going to do, but who knows? Um, hopefully, we won't end up losing the economic, the EIP payment website because they have to give information for a new one. So we'll see how that goes. But that's going to be crucial for taxpayers. This has been the Current Federal Tax Developments for the week of January 17, 2022. Current Federal Tax Developments are brought to you by your State Society of CPAs and by your and by Kaplan Financial Education. 
Now I'm, you know, I'm Ed Zollers and I do this every week. I do hang, hang around the uh, Connect websites for the Arizona Society, New Jersey Society, Illinois, Minnesota, Washington Societies. I also keep an eye on uh, the any postings to the Idaho Society's board, so keep eyes there. If you have questions, you can post them to any of those if you're a member of one of those societies. Uh, also, I, you know, I also will respond if I get time to emails to edzollers at currentfultaxdevelopments.com. Uh, so far, it should be fine. Where it gets messier is as we get further into tax season. Uh, that is the best email address to use for me, even if you got another one, uh, because my main email address for the firm is where I pay mainly attention to client stuff. And if you send me something there, it may get pushed to the back. So I would suggest Ed Zollers at CurrentFoodDevelopments.com is a smart place to go to make sure I'm paying attention when I'm in the, when I basically am ready to deal with questions uh, from the continuing education or this broadcast. So that'd be a good place to go. Otherwise, we will see you next week. It may still be a quiet week because, again, the IRS and government will be shut down for one day because of the Martin Luther King holiday. So there'll only be four days to produce stuff. Uh, Congress does not appear to be moving on any tax bills at this time. Though sometimes they move super fast once they get a, once they decide to agree to something. So if negotiations are going on in the background, it's always possible to get a tax bill. But I think we're now getting far enough into the year that it's becoming very unlikely that the tax bill would make retroactive changes to 21. They're probably going to leave that alone. My guess is they're probably not voting on a tax bill at the very earliest until March and probably not till after that. And they may even reserve any tax bills at this point, assuming they can't get an agreement on the Democratic side, to extenders and the like that would be dealt with in the lame duck session following November elections. So I don't think we'll have a bunch there. But in any event, whatever happens this week, we will see you next week uh, for current federal tax developments.